National Archives podcast series, Security Service Document Releases. My name's Howard Davis and I'm just speaking to you now to introduce Professor Christopher Andrew, who is now going to give you his view on the important features of the files featured in today's release. Professor Andrew is currently leading the work on the official history of the security service and so he's in an ideal position to give those views. I know how fascinating these files are because I see them uh, more or less every day of uh, my working life. I'm the official historian, as was mentioned, of the security um, uh, service. The only problem is I will never get through all of them. When I began writing the official history of the security service, I was told that there were 400,000 files. Uh, That is not inaccurate. But of course, by 400,000, they don't mean um, 400,000 volumes. Uh, They're 400,000 files, and some of them are, are many volumes. Now, it seems to me that after just over 10 years of releasing this material to the National Archives, it's quite a good moment to use some of the files that have been released today to indicate not more, to my mind, irresistibly interesting stories. Also, to point out what these files have cumulatively done over the last 10 years to change the writing of British history. And that, I think, is not an exaggeration. So far as the good stories are concerned, these files have demonstrated their ability to be turned into bestsellers been slightly disappointed that there have not been more Ben McIntyres around who've seen the ability to turn a file not merely into a best-selling story but into film rights uh, as well. But there is at least one story that is being released today, which seems to me, but how would I know, to have the commercial uh, potential of Agent Zigzag, and I'm talking about the film rights as well as the best-selling book. What these stories have also done at a broader level is, and this is a large claim, but I think it's a justifiable claim, to change the way that we understand some of the key episodes in British history. And what they've also done is to give a really remarkable advantage to the youngest historians, because it's by and large uh, graduate students and historians at the beginning of their professions who take most easily to the idea that uh, if you reinsert the intelligence dimension into the writing of British history, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about gender history or history of British technology, that you can say something really rather important. And that is why I think one of the unique things about intelligence history, broadly defined as to include uh, those whose main interest may not be intelligence history, but who are using files like this to change our understanding of, for example, gender history or the history of technology, an advantage over their elders, but not necessarily betters. And I would say that at the present time, intelligence history defined as I've defined it is probably the only era of academic British history in which 90% of the best people are in their 20s and their 30s. Let me give just um, uh, a couple of examples. They just happen to be um, two of the most recent books to come out. Anybody who has read Polly Nose's book on uh, Lawrence of Arabia will never, I think, look at the history of either the First World War in the Middle East or at Lawrence of Arabia in the same way. Anybody who has looked at Christian Gustafsson, Polly is an American, Christian Gustafsson is Canadian, at his recent history of the CIA in Allende's Chile, 
will never look at that story again. In other words, I can't think of anybody over 35 who is in the field that they've been working on in the same class as either of them. I've chosen three examples. Uh, I've chosen the example of Ludwig von Wohl. When he came over to Britain, he quite rightly thought that it would give him a better career chance in, in life in the run-up to the Second World War if he started calling himself Louis de Vol. The security services released files on an extraordinary variety of people over the last ten years. I may have got it wrong, but I think this is the first astrologer. For those working for newspapers which have astrologers, I shall be making a suggestion in a moment. I think that this is a very funny story, which for reasons that I've explained, has all the commercial potential of Agent Zigzag. He's not merely um, an astrologer, he's a preposterous astrologer. I understand that there are um, uh, those present who might not see it necessary to use the adjective once the substantive has been used. He was pretty peculiar looking. There are descriptions of him, quote, walking down Piccadilly, looking like an unmade bed. He originally had two volumes of the files. The, the first lot has disappeared, uh, not for any sinister reasons, but because, as some of you will know, MI5 moved to what it thought was a secure premises at the beginning of the Second World War, that is to say, Wormwood Scrubs, a slightly difficult move since not all the chamber pots had been emptied, not all the prisoners had been moved out, and it was indeed pretty secure premises, but unfortunately the files were housed in a large greenhouse which suffered a direct hit from a German incendiary bomb. So one of the files that disappeared was volume one of Louis de Vaux. At one level, this is a file which can simply be played for laughs, I would say, and I find it pretty funny. But there's more to it than that, so let me go through the two areas in which I think it's of interest. Before the United States entered the war, after Pearl Harbor, December 1941, HMG was thinking of all kinds of ways, some of them extremely ingenious, to make the Americans extremely cross with the Germans. Now, not the most important way, but one of the most ingenious ways was to send its tame astrologer, Louis de Vaux, as I shall call him from now on, on a tour of the United States with a British intelligence minder, casting Hitler's horoscope, a brief reference to his star sign. His star sign uh, is like many other things about Adolf Hitler, not always got right in the books, but Hitler was Taurus with Libra rising. Louis de Vaux was sent by SOE in tour of the United States to cast Hitler's horoscope in newspaper articles, in radio interviews, in public uh, meetings. And because he was Hungarian by origin, he wasn't an obvious British intelligence douche. And of course, it turned out that every single one of the horoscopes that he cast, uh, Hitler had all kinds of misfortunes which were about to um, overtake him. I think the important point to remember is that this is only one example of the incredibly de ingenious deceptions practiced by British intelligence and HMG on the United States before Pearl Harbor, before we uh, became close allies, crossed our hearts, hoped to die, and have never deceived each other since. But here's one other example. British intelligence forged a master plan by the Fuhrer to take over the whole of Latin America. This was passed to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was extremely cross, and broadcast it to the American people 
on Navy and Total Defense Day in uh, October 1941. So both that particular forgery and the horoscopes cast by Louis de Vaux are part of a uh, broader strategy which turned out to be unnecessary because the Japanese declared war on the United States by attacking Pearl Harbor, shortly followed by um, Adolf Hitler. So uh, here's a classic example of uh, a story which seems to me at any rate extremely interesting in itself, but which has far more to it and tells us something, I, I think I'm prepared to use the word profound about British understanding of Hitler during the Second World War. Once again, the first person to spot it, postgraduate in his 20s. What he was the first one to realize is that Louis de Vaux managed to persuade a significant number of people in Whitehall, including the director of naval intelligence, Admiral Godfrey, that Hitler was absolutely obsessed by astrology and that in particular he paid enormous attention to the Swiss astrologer Karl Kraft. A complete nonsense. Hitler regarded astrology as complete nonsense. You might think it might be the only thing that he got right but I couldn't possibly um, comment. But the belief that Hitler really paid attention to horoscopes entered Whitehall. It didn't simply enter the intelligent mind of the Director of Naval Intelligence. It entered the corporate mind of the Joint Intelligence Committee, which for all its failings was by some way the best system of intelligence assessment available anywhere in the um, Second World War. So what Paul Winters has done, the Louis de Vaux file, which he's not seen because it's only just been released, if you find the story of interest, then it's one that needs following through in various other files in the National Archives, and he could tell you how to do it. What Paul was the first person to notice is the astonishing contrast between our inability to understand Hitler's mindset and our astonishing ability to, again, advance knowledge of the deployment of his armed forces. In intelligence jargon, it's the difference between mysteries, Hitler's mindset, and secrets, the deployment of his armed forces. If you look at, for example, the JIC assessments on when Hitler's invasion is going to take place in 1940, and it is difficult to remember now, just about everybody expected Hitler to invade Britain, Operation Sea Lion, in 1940. You will see that in the JIC assessments, the date is calculated according to Hitler's star sign. In other words, those dates that would be fortunate for Adolf Hitler. I wasn't simply an astrologer. Um, JIC also got a water diviner on board. The reason for that is precisely what Paul Winter was the first person to realize that the JIC had realized there was something they couldn't understand about Adolf Hitler. He didn't seem to behave like other people. Now, there was, of course, a complex relationship for that, but one possible explanation of that, which turned out to be completely wrong, is that he was listening to his astrologer. What is truly remarkable is that, to the best of my knowledge, in 1940 and in 1941, there is not a single reference in any GASC assessment to the document which did, of course, give a better insight into Adolf's mind than anything else. That is to say, Mein Kampf. You know, there's a long record of radical politicians writing uh, bizarre documents before they became leader of their, their countries and then forgetting about it once they got power. So it's not until the evidence of Auschwitz comes in, in other words, early 1942, 
that the JIC, which you know has been paying considerable attention to an astrologer and a water diviner, more to the astrologer, I have to say, than to the, the uh, water diviner, starts mentioning Mein Kampf. So today's release is full of uh, stories which are really interesting in their own terms, but which, if uh, uh, deeper digging is done, uh, reveal something really rather important uh, about British history. So the next example that I will take is the files which relate to the end of empire, and arguably the most impressive thing achieved by British foreign policy in the whole course of the 20th century was to unload the biggest empire in world history with relatively little aggravation so far as Britain is concerned, an awful lot of aggravation so far as uh, other people are concerned, in the space of a quarter of a century. Now, there's some extremely good books nowadays. They have been for some time, but the most recent ones, as good as any, on the end of empire. And they all have one thing in common, apart from being extremely good. If you look up MA5 in the index, it ain't there. And what that has done once again is to provide extraordinary opportunities for young researchers. In other words, there are graduate students doing MAs who can get ahead of the best people in the area, not on the whole interpretation, but on some aspects of it. So the example which makes that point in the latest uh, release is are the files on security intelligence far east, S-I-F-E, SIFE. The main British intelligence uh, organization in the Far East with both MI5 and MI6 representation. Now, there was a wonderful book uh, produced last year by Belly and Harper, which quite rightly uh, got a rave review, even if they hadn't come from the same university as me, called Forgotten Wars. But it does not contain a single mention either of SIFE or of MI5, which of course, uh, simultaneously in Cambridge, there was a first-year graduate student who wrote um, Sam Roskamps, who wrote a dissertation on SIFE. So this is an extraordinary example, once again, of the way in which a first-year graduate student tuned in to what the KV files offer can do things which the most eminent historians in the field can't. Now, going through these files, I don't think the stories are easy. I do think that they're interesting. Generals Gerald uh, Tempfive and Saif to reform the intelligence system in uh, Malaysia, Malaya as it was then. It was, by general agreement, the most successful counterinsurgency campaign of anybody's decolonization. What the files show is that Saif got some things wrong. It tended to exaggerate Moscow's influence on Southeast Asian Communist Party. It made a, an only partly correct analogy between the degree to which uh, European Communist parties jumped to attention when Moscow made its intentions known, and the degree to which Southeast Asian Communist parties were a little bit more relaxed. So what this is, is another example of a release which has already generated some of the best PhD theses of recent years. Amongst the files released in recent years have been the files of uh, Jomo Kenyatta. Completely impossible now to write a sensible account of uh, uh, the beginnings of decolonization in East Africa without reference to that file. The file of Kwame Nkrumah, again, completely impossible nowadays to uh, write a serious history of uh, decolonization in East Africa without mentioning that file. Now, there are two things which emerge from these kind of files, which emerge from lots of other files which are released today. At an individual level, 
the material is fascinating. I and mean, it doesn't matter whether you're writing um, uh, a biography of Joan Littlewood or a biography of uh, William Kendall. I'd be quite surprised if there was anyone here who was writing a biography of uh, William Kendall, the leading black marketeer in the House of Commons. But if you intercept somebody's correspondence, listening to their telephone calls, less numerous than they are now, what you sometimes come across, you know, no matter whether it's W.H. Auden or um, Joan Littlewood, is you come across material which biographers have been looking for years. So the, the, the range of interests which um, uh, are covered by this material. But again, with the stuff that affects decolonization, what can we see? It's, I think, not the generally held view that uh, whenever there was a security problem, because um, MI5 was full of security traps, ain't it? that it exaggerated the problem. No, they were listening in to um, what the Communist Party was saying about Kenyatta and Nkrumah, and broadly speaking, the message of the British Communist Party was, after all we've done for them, why is Nkrumah involved in diamond smuggling? So it, it tends to lower the temperature in Whitehall rather than raise the temperature in Whitehall. The last example that I'll give of a file which is uh, open today is a file which, at one level, has an extremely boring title, although I think a distinct contemporary resonance, Russian Oil Products Limited. Now, I don't claim to have read everything on Soviet history, and uh, I don't claim to have read everything on British-Soviet relations, and anyone who makes either of those claims is somebody, I think, to be distrusted. But in what I have read on both of those subjects, and I've read, a, I think, a fairly substantial sample, I've never come across any reference uh, to that organization at all. But it deserves a place in Soviet history. It deserves a place in British-Soviet relations between the wars. And actually, the story is, I think, sufficiently exotic for it maybe to be um, worth some media attention in the meantime. Why? It's an early example of the use of uh, commercial cover for Espionage. It was a British limited company, but um, unsurprisingly, all the shareholders were Russians. It wasn't a tiny company. It had a thousand employees. It had 33 offices and depots uh, across the UK by the eve of war. It was run at an enormous loss, which, given the difficulties that the Russians had in finding Western hard currency at that point, is a pretty good indication, I think of how importantly they regarded it. They made an annual loss in the 1930s, getting on for £400,000. Um, uh, I'm not good at converting the um, prices in the 1930s into prices at the beginning of the 21st century, but in other words, we are talking about millions, and millions which, broadly speaking, the Soviet Union did not have in hard currency. So it was uh, a big deal. What does MI5 fear about it? Well, it, its fears are along a spectrum which looked pretty strange to us, to obviously completely well justified. The one that is likely to inspire the, um, the greatest skepticism is the fear that Russian Oil Products Limited might, in case of war, be used for sabotage. In other words, you use the oil tankers, and indeed the tankers that deliver the uh, oil, for um, sabotage purposes. You know, I don't have a particular judgment about that, but it so happens that uh, one of the personal files in which more volumes are released today is Robert Stewart, one of the founders of the Communist Party of Great Britain. The earlier files, the interwar files of his career were released a few years ago, and if you look in there, you will see that there are sabotage plans. You will also see that the security service knew about those sabotage plans, which, whether 
fantastically or not, I think fantastically, were based on the belief that the IRA would agree to get involved. So if you put together that material with the material in the Russian Oil Products Limited, you don't necessarily come to the conclusion that the Security Service arrived at a judicious assessment, but at least you can understand why they arrived at that uh, assessment. Otherwise, it's interesting at the level of espionage, because you will find that the Security Service became suspicious of a Romanian journalist called Olsen after he approached Shell, Shell Max, as it was in those days, employees and asked for um, commercial, scientific and technological, I suppose, secrets, we would call them nowadays. And it turns out they were right to be suspicious because further um, investigation revealed uh, that he was uh, a Russian working for the KGB, NKVD in those days, called Joseph Volodarsky. There wasn't all that much usable evidence against him, but he pleaded guilty to it in 1932, as you'll see from the file. He um, pleads guilty to an attempt to bribe a Shell employee to gain commercial secrets. 1933, he hotfoots it to Canada. There he gets involved with a man called Willie Brandes, B-R-A-N-D-S, who was uh, running Soviet spy agencies in a number of places, including the Woolwich Arsenal. Back to the beginning. What this series of releases will do is, I hope, not merely to produce a series of articles. It will also cause immense happiness to a new generation of graduate students who will spot things that their elders, but not necessarily betters, have not done. So I believe that once again, I can declare this release unalloyed good news. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on February the 27th, 2008 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Professor Christopher Andrew. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.